Our scripture readings this morning come from Isaiah chapter 55 and then from John chapter 11. Join with me as we read together from Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 through 3 and then 6 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. And now... The Gospel reading from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, 
I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Well, we return this morning to the gospel according to John. If you're visiting with us, we spent majority of last year, 2023, in the book of John, the gospel of John, and we worked through it chapter by chapter, episode by episode, and then we took a break for Thanksgiving and Advent, and we are back in John this morning, taking up where we left off in John 11, 1 through 16. Before we open our Bibles, let's stop. And we're God's priest, all of us together. We're a congregation of priests appointed by Jesus Christ to pray and bring our brothers and sisters and bring our families before him. Well, let's do that. And then let's ask him, ask the Father to teach us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you and At the beginning of this year, we look back and we thank you for Sunday after Sunday. We came before you and prayed, and those prayers have been answered, and we can see the answers plain. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Always there, immutable, always the same. Our Father, so we come this morning remembering how you've blessed in the past, remembering what you've called us to do. And we pray for David Mattingly. Our Father, we pray that you would give the doctors an understanding of exactly what is causing this malady. And I pray that Father, they will see and hear what they need to see and hear to come to a resolution and say, this is the remedy. This is what needs to be done. Bless David, Father. Encouraging. We thank you for his testimony of faithfulness. We pray for Joan Schaefer, Father, that as she meets this week with doctors to discuss and think through what the tests have shown and what needs to be done. We pray that, Father, you would bless her, strengthen her from the inside out. And we pray that you would bring healing to her body and use these doctors, use these treatments to give her many years yet upon this earth. We thank you for her and for her testimony. We pray for Sally and Phil Halley. Father, we look over the last year, we looked at this time last year, and we think of all the changes in Phil's life and how you have blessed and restored, and we just pray that would continue. Give Sally strength for this time. Bless Trip Thompson, Father. We pray the doctors at Mayo will see and hear what they need to see and hear to do what needs to be done. We pray for Molly 
Roberts, that you would bring healing to her, Father. Give her much, much time yet. Bless Buddy Cater as he continues to heal. We thank you for how he is a, such a blessing to Christ's covenant. Our Father, we remember our college students. We thank you for their faithfulness and how they've encouraged us during this holiday, during this Advent season, being home from school. We pray that you would bless them as they return to their colleges, to their universities. We pray that you would give them strength. We pray that they would stand strong in Christ in these very difficult places, these universities that are given over to a, a secular ideology. Oh, we pray that in the darkness they will shine as bright lights. Protect them, Father. Protect them physically and protect them spiritually. And now we bow before you. And every week, Father, we ask you to teach us and we thank you for how you have taught us. We're not the same people that we were. Our greatest fear is that we would come here and, and not hear you and not hear your word. So this morning, once more, we pray, Father. Oh, teach us. Teach us, Father. We pray that we will clearly in our hearts and minds hear your voice, hear your word change us for some of us it will be a continuing change for others oh father it might be the first change oh father change us by the power of your holy spirit and the power of your word we pray amen when god's plan is counterintuitive to our expectations. John builds his gospel. The Apostle John builds his gospel around seven signs, seven miracles. John uses the word signs. They're signs that prove the deity of Jesus Christ. Well, what are those seven signs? What are those seven miracles? We have studied the first six. You know them. The water was turned to wine, one. Two, the healing of the nobleman's son who was near death. Three, the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Four, the feeding of the 5,000. Five, remember right after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is walking across the Sea of Galilee through a stormy sea in the darkness. And then there's the healing of the man born blind in Jerusalem in John 9. And now we come to the seventh sign. Now, there were far more miracles. You know that. Read Matthew and Mark and Luke. But remember, John wrote his gospel last. And so he just selected seven. He said, let me tell you about these to prove 
that he is the son of God. And so we see in chapter 11, raising of Lazarus from the dead. Chapters 11 and 12 record the last of these signs. And they also record the apologetic. Remember that apology does not mean saying, I'm sorry. That's one meaning today as we use the word. Historically, the word means a defense. If there is a debate and you make an apology for one side of that day, you're advocating for that side of the debate. Well, this last sign had an apologetic power, apologetic impact on the disciples, on those that weren't believing in Jesus, on the Sanhedrin. It was a culminating type of miracle that provided irrefutable evidence to the claims of Jesus. Let me encourage you. The raising of Lazarus from the dead still provides that same powerful apologetic, that same powerful defense today. Thus, we will camp out in these two chapters for several Sundays. I want you, I hope, I press upon you to do this. I want, I hope you will read chapters 11 and 12 daily. That you say, while we're in this study, in John 11 and 12, I'm going to read this every day. It will be my devotion. I'm going to read these two chapters every day. You find out that on the sixth or seventh or eighth day, you're seeing things that you didn't see on the first day or the second day or the third day. Get to know these two chapters as never before. If you do that as an individual, you will be affected. If we do that as a church, CCRC as a church will be affected. Who were Martha, Mary, and Lazarus? Lazarus was a brother to Mary and Martha. They were followers of Jesus and also personal friends with him. We read in Luke 10 that they entertained Jesus. Think about this. If you could be able to say this, I was not just a disciple. I was a friend of Jesus. Jesus spent a lot of time in my home. What if if you were known as someone that entertained Jesus? Well, that's who they were. They lived in Bethany. Bethany's about two miles from Jerusalem. It makes sense that their main appearance in the Gospels is in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. That's where Jesus lived, in that northern province. John's major focus even though he mentions uh, several times Jesus' ministry in Galilee, John's main focus is the ministry of Jesus in Judea, in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem area, in the southern province. And that's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. At the end of chapter 10, the leaders, to remember where we left off, the the leaders of the Sanhedrin were seeking to arrest Jesus They wanted to stone Jesus for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. Chapters 7 through 10 
record an ongoing and hostile debate between Jesus and the political and religious leaders of Israel in Jerusalem. Two feasts took place in it. We just, we studied this, chapters 7 through 10. You can go back and read it this afternoon. But chapter 10 ended with the hostility had become so intense, and it wasn't time yet. And so Jesus left Jerusalem and traveled east across the Jordan River. He was in a more remote area, but the crowds followed him there. And we read right at the closing of chapter 10 that many people believed. While he was there, a messenger arrived from Martha and Mary with the news that Lazarus was ill. Now, what do we do when a member of our family is seriously ill? We call a doctor. Well, that's not what Mary and Martha were doing in sending a messenger to Jesus. Now, you say, well, Jesus is a great physician. Well, let's think about this for a minute. In the remainder of this chapter, in chapter 12, we see that they were a well-known and prominent family in Judea. They would have sought a local doctor, a doctor who was there. They knew Jesus was several days away. In sending this messenger to Jesus, they were really confessing their faith. They were doing exactly what we do after enlisting medical help. Sometimes you'll call me and you'll call someone else in the church call Brian and say my daughter's sick my son's sick I'm sick I need prayer well I hope that's not the first call you make I hope the first call you make is call the doctor you know because that's what I'm going to say I'm going to say well are you doing what you ought to do have you called the doctor but after that they enlisted Jesus' help. In other words, they prayed. That's what we do when we pray to Jesus. What is a prayer? It's a petition. It's a petition to God, a petition to Jesus. They prayed. They sent a messenger. They knew he had the power to heal the sick. Not through medicine, but he could simply say a word and the blind would see. He'd say a word and deaf would hear. He could say a word and immediately Lazarus would get up and say, I'm well but not through medical treatment. Well, that's what they were doing. What did Martha and Mary say when Jesus got there four days after Lazarus died? Look at verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now they, that was a confession of faith again. They had faith that Jesus would have healed him. He would have spoken. He wouldn't have treated him with mess. He would have just spoken and Lazarus would have been healed. So in sending that messenger, go to Jesus and tell him Lazarus is ill. It's indeed a prayer asking for help. We can learn much 
from what happened. We're not going to talk about Lazarus being raised today. We're just going to talk about Lazarus dying. Let's look at the basis first for this prayer. Notice the basis for their prayer. Verse 3, so the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Lord, the one whom you love is ill. Notice they did not say the one who loves you is ill. Many well-meaning Christians will say in their prayers for a hurting friend, God, you know how much he loves you or how much she loves you. You know how much he has served you and how much she has served you. My dad suffered from Alzheimer's for five years. Uh, Serious, uh, hard five years. And people would say to me, your dad was the most faithful minister I know. You know, and why hadn't God healed him? Why hadn't he taken him home? Why is your father still suffering from this? And they were talking about how good my dad was. That's not what you see here. No. Lord, he whom you love, Jesus, the one whom you love, God, whom the one you love is ill. The prayer of the self-righteous Pharisee is always, look how good I am. I deserve for you to save me. I deserve you to heal me. When we say, well, where was God when my child died? What you're really saying is, I'm deserving. I'm deserving. Me. On my merit. I'm amused sometimes when I will ask a fellow Christian, uh, they've come to me and they've got a problem or they're, they're ill, and they come to me and they want me to pray for them because I'm a minister. And somehow I'm supposed to have this pathway to God that they don't have. They didn't, you know, and I know immediately when they're like that, that they hadn't read scripture. And so I asked them, I said, let me ask you a question. Have you prayed? Have you prayed about this? And the most amazing thing is sometimes they say, no. No, I haven't. And I say, well, why haven't you prayed? And they say, I hadn't been living like I should. I don't feel like I deserve it. I don't feel like I should pray. And I'll say, let me get this straight. Somehow, if you had been living straight, somehow, if you had been doing what you ought to have been doing as a Christian, then you would deserve God to heal you. People, we should strive toward holiness, yes, but we should never make God's blessing be dependent on being deserving. Because it, 
No healing will ever take place. Look at David's prayer in Psalm 51. This is all through Scripture. Psalm 51, 1 and 2. Look at it. Stop and look at it. Have mercy on me, O God. And at this point, understand that David has committed adultery. Not only that, he has been hiding the adultery so that no one will know. And that hiding actually caused a man's death. David had been in the midst of wickedness. And so when he goes, but what does he say to God? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. What was he saying? If I'm going to God to ask forgiveness, if I'm going to God to ask for help, it's going to have to be his love because I'm not worthy. Mary and Martha got that right in their prayer. Lord, the one you love is ill. They knew the basis for their prayer for their brother had to be based on the love of Christ. This is counterintuitive to the way the world around us thinks and how we think. Lord, this is a great servant of yours. Look how much he loves you. He deserves to be healed. No. That person is a true servant. He's going to say, no, don't you pray that way. Don't you dare pray that way about me. You pray, heal him, Father, because of your love for him or for her. The basis for their prayer. Secondly, I want you to look at this and see Jesus' unique perspective of the situation. Jesus' unique perspective of the situation. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, first, Jesus makes what seems to be an erroneous statement. This illness does not lead to death. Well, you know the story. You know the rest of the story. Lazarus does die. It was unto death. Why did Jesus say it does not lead to death? Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He knew what he would do. He knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. That is a perspective that only he could have. This is not an episode or a drama that ended with death. It ended with the resurrection and Lazarus being alive. But there's another unique perspective here. And this is what I really want you to see. We've said from Jesus' perspective, this illness does not lead to death. But also, this illness, he says, is for God's glory. That God would receive glory. That the Son of God may be glorified. Now, Jesus was looking at a serious illness. He was looking at Lazarus' death, saying, the illness and death or for a reason, so that God will be glorified. Now, we've heard this previously in our study in John. Remember Jesus' encounter with the blind man in chapter 9? A man's blind from birth, and the disciples see him, and they ask, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus said, It's neither this man or his parents but the works of God 
might be displayed. Therefore, the glory of God. He's blind for the glory of God. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? And just, you know. If Jesus had merely, go back, if Jesus had merely healed Lazarus of this illness, the world would have taken little notice. But raising him from the dead four days after he died, that rocked their world. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were never the same again. How different would our lives be if we looked at dire circumstances from this incredible perspective that this will be to the glory of God. Some of you have heard this story before, but I couldn't help it. I just had to use it again. Most of you hadn't heard it. Elihu Anderson was a humble minister on the backside of the world in Hayside, Virginia. Deep in the mountains, deep in the coal fields. Folks, don't ask me where it is because it doesn't matter. You can't get there from here. It just can't. He was a school teacher, a local school teacher. He began teaching Sunday school in the local church, Presbyterian church. Then he began to preach in the Presbyterian church. He did not go to seminary, but it was so obvious that he had been called of God, that the local presbytery ordained him. And he spent the rest of his life ministering to the Presbyterian church, to two Presbyterian churches in Hayside, Virginia. When he stepped down because of age and infirmities, he remained living in that wonderful parish. When he suffered from heart failure and other age-related illnesses, Hayside did not have a hospital. And he would go across a wicked, mountainous road. Now, the road was not morally wicked. I understand that. But you would have said if you ever drove it, that's a wicked road. It would take an hour to go 10 miles. Well, this went on for quite a while. He would go to the hospital. He'd come home from the hospital. Then he'd have an emergency and have to go back. It went, I'm, we're talking about two or three years this went on. Why? I'm sure I knew Mr. Anderson. I'm sure he was saying, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to go home. I'd rather go to glory than go across that road again and go through the hospital experience. But you know what was happening? His children and his grandchildren, they understood because every time he went across that mountain, some ambulance driver, some EMT, some nurse was converted. And every time he went to that hospital, another doctor became a Christian or another nurse became a Christian. Literally with every hospital stay, people's lives were forever changed. I think Elihu Anderson had the perspective of Jesus about his personal trials. He was asking, how can this redound to the glory of God? That's what Jesus said. So we see the notice, the basis for the prayer. We see Jesus' unique perspective. These things are counterintuitive, aren't they? 
But in this, now we get serious with being counterintuitive. Notice that Jesus' actions are opposite of our expectations. Look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he packed up and immediately, immediately left for Bethany. He walked through the night two days in a row to get there. No, that's not what it says. Look at verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill. Now start over. Let's go back to 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So because of that. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was. Now, you can't read that without saying, what? If I would do that to you, you would say, John, we've known each other a long time. But why in the Sam Hill did you not get here? expect Jesus to say we must get to death and get there as quickly as possible especially since I mentioned how much Jesus loved them he didn't do that we read that he stays two, two days probably continuing to teach the crowd and yet that whole thing begins with and Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus but we see this all through Scripture. It shouldn't be counterintuitive because it's everywhere in Scripture. In chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes of some type of physical malady that he has that is so painful and so burdensome to him, he calls it a thorn in the flesh. Have you ever had a thorn sticking in your arm or finger or foot or leg? And it's just, and you can't get it out? It's constant. Well, that's what he said this was, a thorn in the flesh. And he pleaded with God to take it away. Now, keep in mind that Paul prayed for others and they were supernaturally healed. Well, Paul prayed, Father, take away the thorn. And God said, nope, I will not do that. He said, this thorn, Paul, I put it there. I allowed it to keep you humble. I allowed it to cause you to be dependent and continue to be dependent on me. He was more interested in Paul's holiness than he was his physical comfort. Why did God allow the thorn? Why did God allow it? Because he loved Paul. Notice the basis for their prayer. Jesus' unique perspective. Jesus' actions are opposite of our expectations. Fourthly, see that Jesus' actions seem to be dangerous to his own well-being. What did his disciples say? Look at verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are, not, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Remember, he had just left Judea, gone to some remote area to get away from this intense hatred. Wasn't time yet. 
And his disciples said, Jesus, I know you want to go to Lazarus, but you're going to get killed. How does this passage end? In the 16th verse, it ends with Thomas said, well, if he's going, let's go with him and we'll all die. Every time I come to this passage, I did it again this week. I just had to smile at the irony. Folks, look at this in light of all of Scripture. Look at this in light of the incarnation. They were talking. They were talking to Jesus. Who was Jesus? The Son of God who had left the glory of heaven and come to a rebellious world to do what? To die an awful death on a cruel cross. The decision had already been made in eternity past. He would be killed. They wouldn't listen to it. What was the first thing Jesus said when they, when they confessed, you're the Christ, the Son of God? He said, well, let me tell you, I'm going to Jerusalem and be killed. No, that can't happen. And that's what they were saying here. It's an irony. You can't go down there. You're going to get killed. And Jesus, I think he's being really nice. He says, look, guys, it's still day. You know, we live in an agrarian society. And during the day, we can go in the fields and work. But at night, we can't go in the fields and work. There's no light. Well, it's still day. And I have work to do. That's what he was saying. He could have said, guys, I've tried to tell you. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I told you that six months ago, eight months ago. I told you a year ago. He didn't say that. What Jesus says seems to be counterintuitive to their expectations. Notice the basis of prayer. Jesus' unique perspective is to the glory of God. Jesus' actions are opposite of our expectations. Jesus' actions seem dangerous to his own well-being. Finally, we go back to the expectations. Jesus' words are opposite of the disciples' expectation. Look at verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sakes, I'm glad I was not there. So that you may believe. Don't you love, don't you, you want Jesus as a pastor? What if I said to you, your husband has died and I'm glad he did. That's what the, that's what pastor Jesus said. How could he say that? Because he knew what he was about to do. He was about to restore Lazarus to Martha and Mary. He was about to show his disciples the greatest feat that they had ever seen. He was about to take their faith to another level. He would counterman death. He could say this because he had a different perspective than the disciples. That's the reason for this message. If we learn to have the perspective of Jesus, it will change how we live through delightful times, wonderful times. It will change how we live through 
hard times, tough times. Through the death of Lazarus, they learned the truth of Jesus' statement. And he was glad he was not there to stop the death. Let me ask you a question. We're at the end. Major point yet to be made in our closing. What if you were carried back to the place and time of Jesus' crucifixion? He's just died on the cross. The disciples are distraught. They're ready to desert. They're already deserting. They're ready to abandon their faith. He, he could not have been the Messiah. Messiahs don't die on Roman crosses. What would you tell them? John, Matthew, James. I wish you could understand. I look at that cross. I look at his death as the greatest sight I have ever seen. The crucified Christ is my salvation. The cross of Christ has become a thing of beauty and power. You see, when God's plan is counterintuitive to our expectations, that is true in our lives. In this wonderful faith, every day, I was, a man asked me before the service, said, all right, what's, what's the message this morning? Uh, I said, we're going to talk about how what Jesus does is counterintuitive to our expectations. And he made the most wonderful comment. He said, well, that's all the time. It is. Do you know why it's all the time? Do you know why it's all the time? And this is the major point. Because God is God. And you're not, and I'm not. That's why everything he does is counterintuitive. And he says it all through Scripture. And you read it this morning. We read it together in the responsive reading from Isaiah look at it Isaiah 55 8 and 9 on your scripture sheet or on your in your bulletin God is speaking it says for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts in every aspect of our relationship with God his thoughts his ways are just beyond ours. Here's a perspective we don't have. There's just a constant counterintuitiveness about it. Grace. We came to the table last week. Did you come to the table because you were so good? you come to the table telling God how good you were? That's, what the way, that's the way the world thinks. Uh, we came to the table. I'm that sinner. I'm the sinner. We see a, a hard time, really hard time, 
and someone says the truth, know this. This is going to redound to the glory of God. And the world says, and sometimes Christians say, I don't like that God. I heard a great answer this week to that. I was listening to a tape by R.C. Sproul, and he said, they say, I don't like that God. That it redounds his God. That's the reason for it? I don't like that God. And R.C. said, tough. Tough. Because he's God, and you're not. 